You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're joined by Dr. Aaron Blocker-Rubin, President and CEO of Arizona Autism United, and Carrie Baranek, Vice President and Clinical Director of Children and Youth Services. On Tuesday's episode, we'll be discussing ABA red and green flag and how recognizing them can help offer better ABA therapy treatment. With their combined 45 years of experience in the field of autism treatment, they're uniquely positioned to provide insight into what to look for in quality ABA therapy and what warning signs to watch out for. Aaron, Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. We appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Very excited. Absolutely, my pleasure. And uh, to be honest, is that the dialogue that you all have created in the autism service delivery world, the recipients of care, those stakeholders, um, and uh, autistics themselves has been uh, astounding. And it's been wonderful to be able to watch, observe, and learn from. But before we get into that dialogue, because that's what really drove the, the red and green flag conversation, I'd love for you all just to give some background and give us a little bit of an understanding of what brought you into this field to begin with. Maybe, Aaron, we'll start with you, is what, what brought you into the autism treatment field? Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, for me, it was family. When I was in high school, I uh, had the gift of a, a baby brother. He was 16 years younger than me. And um, he had autism. His name was Andy. And I observed from a very young age, uh, around two or so, that he was developing very differently from my sister, who was only a year older. Um, I had a very hard time making any eye contact with him. Um, He wasn't speaking. He was a lot of fun. He was really cute. He was very hyper. We were chasing him around all day, but something was clearly different. And that opened my eyes to the world of autism. Um, I grew up on the East Coast, but I decided to go to college out West at UCLA. And uh, there was a very famous professor there named Dr. Ivar Lovas. And my family encouraged me to take a class with him. And I did just because I wanted to learn more about autism and see if there was anything I could learn that would help Andy. Um, And uh, unexpectedly stumbled upon a whole world of clinical practice and science and behavior analysis that I didn't know existed and was just blown away by what could be done for children like my brother. Um, And just kind of one thing led to another. I kept going with the classes. I kept working with the kids and I I just absolutely loved it. And uh, I guess I just never looked back. Well, and I would imagine that not only did your experience through your academics and your studies and, and your family help to guide a lot of what you're seeing right now in the field, but I would imagine that the compassion that you built by having a family member who you were there with and that you learned some of the science, but it's more understanding the experience of the individual that probably push this ABA red flag, green flag even further? I mean, is that is there an impetus behind that as far as, hey, you know what, this could have been my brother. Like, this is my family. This is what I, this is what I need to speak out for. Is that kind of the start of that process? And uh, Carrie, I, I do want to hear your story, but I just, I, when, when Aaron, when you brought that up, it just kind of hit my brain a little bit as far as, you know, there's more to this. 
Well, absolutely. And and I wouldn't say that that's the only thing that that's driving my my perspective. But, you know, I think that because of the experience that I had with my brother and with my whole family, um, you know, when people say autism affects the whole family, I mean, it couldn't be more true, you know. And I think uh, it's so important that when we talk about the the clinical ramifications of the work we do as as ABA therapy providers or just as autism service providers, um, we cannot operate in a bubble where we only look at, well, you know, our research articles say do this, and therefore none, no other opinions matter, you know. And I, I've always felt that that is a bit of a problem, especially in, in the field of behavior analysis, uh, just too much tunnel vision about one approach and one approach only. I think the field has made great gains in recent years, being much more collaborative with other disciplines and so on. Um, the approach has become much more open and uh, I think has evolved in, in some really great ways. Um, but then along came a lot of money. And so now a whole bunch of new problems have been introduced, which we'll get to later in the discussion. But um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I do think about my family and I think that you know my career has been focused on uh, leading a nonprofit autism community service provider. And so for from the very beginning, the whole uh, mission and vision was based around a family-centered approach where families have, you know, they are uh, the, the, the number one priority of everything we do. And so I think that that certainly stemmed from my experience. Um, but I think today it's my family and all the, you know, hundreds of other families that that I've grown close to over the years that I think about where it's like, we need to make sure that we are practicing in a way that is um, considering the needs of everyone and, and doing the best we can with the big picture in mind. It's not just about how many behaviors can we change, right? It's about quality of life and that affects more than one person. Yeah, and I'm sure that everybody involved is is happy to know that their that their voice is being amplified through this process. But Terry, what, what brought you on your autism treatment journey? Sure. I uh, was working in residential treatment care as an undergrad, um, so group home settings with young men, uh, adolescent boys and, and young men. And I was uh, there for you know two, two and a half years and beginning to get really burnt out on just sort of feeling very ineffective and not really having um, real any real guidance on how to make a, a meaningful impact. Um, and it was about that time that I was um, approached by the the psychiatrist at the at the home where I was working who you know would prescribe meds and so forth and asked me if I'd ever considered working with young children with autism and I hadn't really uh known much about it and so I I was intrigued and I I I met his son and uh instantly hooked uh, a lot of energy um a lot of energy uh and uh well, I think what really sparked my interest was this idea that there's this whole science here that um, gave you tools to be able to really make a meaningful impact. And it was it was the antidote I needed to where I was coming from, where I felt like I really wasn't being very effective. But you know, here was the science that that I could I could learn. Right. Just little old me. I could learn and make meaningful changes. Um, and so I found the whole thing just incredibly optimistic. Yeah, it's just a, a very optimistic science and endeavor, and I really haven't haven't looked back. Um, and the the first client that I worked with was Andy, was Aaron's little brother. So oh, that's wow. um, yeah, that we we didn't actually meet 
for a while, uh, we, we sort of worked in parallel um, agencies and, and later met. And of course, you know, that we had Andy in common. And uh, yeah, I can attest that he was uh, adorable and really rambunctious and uh, uh, completely authentically himself, which is another reason I, I love working in this field. Yeah, I love the I love the background stories because yeah. in order to do a great job in this field is that the passion has to be there. It's mm -hmm. you have to have something driving you because it's it's a service oriented field is mm -hmm. that you're trying to give back in so many ways. So just hearing those stories, it, it kind of puts it into perspective of why we're here and what we're talking about. And and maybe you all both gave little hints already about some of the things that uh, that are existing in the field right now, because we're at a time where you have a very young clinician base. It's a growing field. You have young leaders in the field that are learning on the fly, it feels like at times. You have um, a system of care that's evolving drastically, um, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a not so good way. You have um, a science that is constantly trying to understand the cultural impacts and the other influences and being able to adapt to it to be able to make sure that we're treating the entirety of a patient stakeholder community environment, which is that multidisciplinary part that Aaron was talking about. But can you, and maybe I'll start with you, Aaron, as, can you explain to me maybe what are the biggest concerns right now that led to the discussions of ABA red flag and green flags? Before we even get to them, what drove this conversation to begin with? Well, you know, the ABA field has been around many decades, right? Um, evolving. But as as you know, Jeff, you've been in the field a long time too. It's only the last five, maybe 10 years that we've seen the level of just explosive growth and, and uh, private investment um, that is just completely reshaping the field and, and legitimately turning it into an industry. Um, and I think that that has happened so fast and so aggressively. Um, and there's a number of just sort of like big kind of corporate players, so to speak now, that to me, the, the, the biggest concern I have is the normalization of practices that should not be normal. You know, that, that when, when, they're, when they become this widely, rapidly spread and they're backed by a lot of money and a lot of marketing and a lot of influence, and then on top of it, you have, like you said, a young field where many of the practitioners are are newly certified or within a few years um, that is growing so fast, which means everybody joining the field is new to it, right? Um, there's there's a, a huge risk of people just sort of learning as they're new to a field, oh, this is the way things are done. And I think that there has been a bit of a strong word, but I think it's there's been a bit of a, an abusive approach of taking, um, you know, these sort of generic research uh, conclusions and just rapidly adopting them into a very aggressive business model. And we're seeing this play out in a number of ways. And I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it's good for families. Obviously, for some families, it works great, but that's not the point. 
The whole point of a science and a treatment like this, and frankly, any healthcare treatment, is to individualize, right? I mean, when was the last time you went to the doctor and they said, this is the only thing you can do, and if you're not going to do it, get out of my office, right? Like, it, it, that's just not the way healthcare works. But if if that becomes the assumption and providers are just sort of told anything else is, you know, unethical or whatever it is, um, I don't think that that A, we have a very good long-term outcome for kids and families. There's already, you know, uh, an issue with enough adult autistic adults who say they had bad experiences with ABA. I think that we are at risk of raising a generation that's having a different kind of bad experience, um, which is sort of being coerced into too much ABA. Um, and for parents, not having really the, the choice that they're supposed to have in terms of shaping their own child's experience. Um, and I don't see how payers are going to go for this for much longer. I mean, they, they're already like blown away at how much money this treatment is costing when, you know, the whole reason we were able to get insurance to cover ABA is because of this argument that, oh, this actually saves money in the long run. But the way it's being done doesn't really follow at all what was kind of promised. So those are some of the things that for me, in terms of like, why make such a big deal out of this is, you know, families need to be aware of of what's normal and, and what's, what's not normal and what their options should be. Um, employees who are newer to the field need to understand that there are different ways providers operate and you don't have to assume that what you're experiencing is the way everybody does it because I do think we lose people in the field when they get burnt out by that. And then I think we really all collectively need to, to care about the future of the field, about sustainability, about the next generation of families who's, who are gonna need these services. Because the way it's going right now, I'm very concerned that all the hard work we've done and all the battles we've won to make ABA so available and accessible is at risk because um, I don't know if we're going to get the outcomes that were promised with this approach. I, I fear there will be a lot of negative side effects. And I think it's way too expensive and it doesn't need to be this expensive because there's a huge um, problem of just, you know, overbilling and sort of overprogramming. Yeah. So a lot of those concerns that you have are things that I think that we've been able to talk about with, with other guests as well. And, and I don't think that many of them are super controversial. I think that, you, you know, think, some right? of these things are known within the industry that we have to work on, we have to focus on. Um, and I, and to be honest, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, the, the management, the clinician voice, the ability for independence and in practice, the, the chance to be able to make sure that you're treating a, a client, treating a family versus treating a system. Yes. Um, and I think it was last week's episode, um, I had a, had a chance to talk with Ravi El Fatal, who, who runs an organization um, out in Idaho right now. And he was talking about just the, the systemic prescribing of care at 40 hours a week. And, and those are the sorts of things that you worked on the old studies. <laughs> it's, it's, that was what the study was built off of, but we've learned so much to make care more efficient, more integrated, more accessible, look at the environments, look at the other players, and being able to figure out what's appropriate for each of our clients rather than every client needing the same exact uh, treatment for their diagnosis. And, and those are the things that I think we have to learn from. So Carrie, when, when you all 
started down this path, I mean, what were the biggest of the red flags that came funneling through? You all opened up a waterfall of voices when when this discussion started. And when I was observing this uh, through LinkedIn, through chats, it's like you sit there and, and you're nodding along back. Yeah, you know, these are things that we need to be aware of, we need to work on, we need to understand, we need to make sure that our teams of managers are focused around the right things, not the wrong things. Quality care should drive what we're doing, not profits. Like profits ideally follow quality care, to be honest, is that who's not gonna wanna go to the quality organization? Yeah. But Carrie, what were those biggest of red flags that you saw coming through? Yeah, for, for us, I think on the family side specifically, we we'll, we get calls often from families who are you know desperate looking for services. Um, oftentimes they've already had experiences with other agencies and those experiences have been less than positive. And I mean, we hear stories that I'm just appalled to hear. Um, as Aaron, you know, made reference to, we, we have had families who say things like, I was told that I need to pull my child from school in order to begin services at this agency and that I have to start immediately. And if I can't commit to a high number of hours, then um, I, I, that they have to move on and I won't be able to receive services. Um, and, and you know, Jeff, this this is absolutely the opposite of, of the nature of behavior analysis. We start with a quality assessment. We look at the needs of the child. Um, I think every everyone on this call or everyone listening could could agree that you, you understand the concept of maybe like a placement test. You know, you start with what do you know? What what do you need to know? And then we we build something very customized for you based on that. So to have this notion that you must commit to this high number of hours it just blows my mind. So I think those those were the early warning signs for me when we started to hear things like that. And, and you, can, issue, you can understand why they happen, right? It's um, it, it 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 seems as though it's financially motivated, financially mm -hmm. driven. Yeah. On on those on those sorts of concerns, I mean, so just listening to what I'll hear from providers in the field is that you know they'll go through their assessment process. They'll say, you know, this is kind of where we're landing. This is the number of goals we have to work on. Would the juxtaposition of that be, you know, okay, so the family may not be able to commit to that amount of time, well, then we need to reprioritize what it is you're going to be able to get out of treatment. Let's mm -hmm. talk through this again and maybe move from an intensive comprehensive plan, which a lot of younger kids benefit from, but it's not necessarily one-size-fits-all model, to a focused, tailored, short-term uh, almost like a transitional plan mm -hmm. to be able to say, let me focus on these three, four key behaviors because your goal is to get your child back into the community, not to continue with treatment for four or five years in an intensive model. Is that the dialogue that you would be looking for if you were to take your red flag, flip the script and get back to a green flag? Is that what you'd be looking for is having that flexibility of the types of treatment? Absolutely. Um... I think it, you know, and I don't even know that we really have even categorized them that um, broadly anymore, focused and comprehensive. It, it is just even, there's so many shades between that, right? Um, we we kind of approach our goal writing and, and our protocols with quality, like 
a high quality of life for the individual and for the family. You know, what is most important to you, mom? Dad, what what would be the best possible outcome here that, that we could attain in, you know, maybe one, two, three years? And we, we kind of drive from that from that place. Of course, there's a place for standard assessments and curriculum-based assessments. Um, but I think if you over-rely on on just those assessments, like you know, um, a curriculum-based assessment, then you you can easily fill 40, 30 hours, right? But if but if you start from this place of what is important to you, what will be the most meaningful changes for you, then then we can build around that. Um, and that's just a different, I think that's a different approach than many new BCBAs tend to take because those conversations take time, they're dynamic, um, you have to ask the right questions. And you, you really have to approach it with some empathy. You also have to approach it with a very humble mindset. You don't necessarily know what's best for that family. You have to let them tell you what's best for them. And and sometimes that might conflict with your your training, uh, you know, with with uh, with what your maybe your supervisors are telling you. So it's a it's a really fragile time, but it's critical. And I think that's kind of what drives our our process going forward. Yeah, I mean, just even that starting point of being able to individualize the assessment protocols, individualize your treatment recommendations, which, and, and, and I don't know if this is kind of the common term or not, but either the dosage or the prescription or whatever it is, it's it's individualizing that. But mm -hmm. Aaron, you had hit on the fact that, that that treatment plan is not solely going to be just the ABA component, it's going to be saying, you know, so we have this treatment plan, we know the family's goals, we also know some of the limitations of where our knowledge base is. So how do you individualize beyond just the ABA service to make sure that you're actually helping support the entirety of that child's development? Yeah, Jeff, you know, I think it it goes back to the, the first thing you just said with Carrie, which is, and it sounds so obvious when you say it, right? Like you start with a, a recommendation based on assessment and you discuss it with the family and then you modify if you have to because you know treatment doesn't work if the family's not bought in like we know this that's 101 and so it's kind of like doing parent training with a parent who doesn't want to be trained it, it, it's pointless right you you have to have it has to be a, a team effort for the child to change and plus keep in mind you know so much of the previous research was home-based aba it is a relatively new phenomenon that so much ABA therapy is happening in a clinic. And we have to keep in mind that at 40 hours a week, you're now taking the child out of their home, away from their family for you know, a full-time job every week. And we don't yet really know what the ramifications of that are. Um, and I'm sure some will adapt well, but I'm sure some will not. And, and plus for, for parents, I think the problem is that you know you say, quality of care should win, right? Like people should naturally gravitate, sort of like a capital, capitalistic kind of, uh, you know, let the free market decide concept, right? It's like, well, you know, the best organizations will survive and the bad ones will go away. I don't think that, that we can rely on that because we've got very vulnerable families who are at very early stages, who are very scared. And this has always been the case with autism. And I absolutely pull from my own family's experience who, tried all kinds of things with my brother because there wasn't anything available and anybody who said they had something that worked, they were willing to try. Many families, especially from you know the 90s and early 2000s, know this story too well. 
Carrie unfortunately had to participate in some of those things with my brother, you know, <laughs> shining weird lights in his eyes and stuff that didn't do anything. But, you know, people are desperate. They try, right? And now you've got big money machines with big marketing um, resources behind them to basically very, and we see this in, you know, all kinds of industries where society will develop, will, will adopt unhealthy habits because there's really good marketing that convinces you it's okay. And I think that is the scary thing. Um, you know, it, it isn't just a question of comprehensive versus focused, right? Like that's a very black and white basic analysis that I think was kind of designed at the time when insurance was new to covering ABA and we, you know, BACB and so on was trying to put some definition around it. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of ramping up like, okay, my child's two. I just got diagnosed. This is very overwhelming for me. You're saying I basically can't see him now for 40 hours a week and I'm not entirely sure what you're doing with them. Could we start at like 15 hours a week and could I observe a lot and then maybe see how it's going and then ramp up and as we're seeing progress and like you said, Jeff, like be clear on like, well, this is what we think we can accomplish with 40 versus 30 versus 20 versus 10. That is a skill that BCBAs should be able to develop. Not easy, right? And this is where I don't like the term dosage because I don't think ABA is medicine. We don't have the kind of research that, you know, um, pharmaceuticals go through with double blind placebos. We have clinical recommendations and we have to use a lot of clinical judgment, but there's so much we don't know and we won't know until we have a chance to see how a child responds, how the family responds, you know, who the therapists are, you know, what the right goals should be. I mean, this is a process and it, it should be approached that way. But the things we are seeing are, and that providers will tell us in secret or maybe after they've left an organization, and that parents tell us because we get all kinds of calls from parents who are, don't know what to do because they're, they're having a problem where their child gets services. We see an approach of cram as many goals into that treatment plan as it takes to get 40 hours approved for insurance, right? We see um, if a BCBA thinks Maybe they don't need a full 40 hours and they would actually benefit from a lower intensity um, or perhaps doing part time in their school that they're already in um, and then part time ABA. We're seeing that that, that has to go through uh, management approval to get less than 40. I mean, this, this just blows my mind. Shouldn't it be management approval to get 40? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't the high intensity thing be the thing that like, okay, let's confirm if this is actually justified rather than, oh, you're saying he needs less than the max? I mean, that's like going to a doctor and saying, um, well, we're going to have to get approval to not give you surgery. Like, that's not the way medical necessity works, right? Um, but these are roadblocks that are being put in by, by a corporate entity, you know, by, by executives that are probably very far removed from the actual treatment. And I think this is why you know, some people have asked me, you know, why do you focus so much on red flags? Like, why not celebrate the positives or share good tips and strategies? I'm all for that. And frankly, I think lots of people are doing that and doing it very well. Carrie is, is amazing at this. Um, I feel like the BCBAs, their opportunity is to develop the skill to accurately come up with a good recommendation for treatment hours and make those adjustments. That's where you educate. That's where you share strategies. That's where you focus on the positives. But when company policies are putting in roadblocks for them to be able to even do that, 
and they're getting chastised if they do, or they're getting fired or laid off if they start suggesting, because we hear that too, about some changes in these policies. That's where I feel there we have a responsibility to the field to call that out. And that is a red flag, because those are not clinicians who are making those policies. Those are not people with clinical integrity who understand what we do and understand the positive and negative impacts that ABA can have on a family. Um, I don't think that bad care is better than no care, right? Um, that's where I think that we have a responsibility to speak up and to show others it's okay to speak up because if enough of us are serious about it, I absolutely believe it will change. Yeah, no, and I, I think, that, I mean, everything that you're seeing, it rings true. Um, I look at it from from a variety of different angles um, as, as you kind of were going through that process is that just from having some of the opportunity to sit on some of the committees that, that exist out there, is that this this same problem that you were describing, it rings true across or different organization types. I could be a sole proprietor and my whole goal now turns into financial stability mm -hmm. versus clinical quality. Um, I could be, uh, I mean, during COVID, I would imagine a lot of people cut back specific things that were going on clinically in order to keep a company afloat during that time period that was ongoing. Um, you've mentioned the the private investment world is that it's the same it's the same issues that you'd be running into is that if you're putting profit ahead of quality is that that's going to cause some problems. How much of that? I mean, if you were to be talking with a family and you're talking about these red flags, how much of that is helping the family to really be able to tease through, you know, the the mission, the value, not the words of the mission and value, but how that's actually playing out, how that management team is actually empowering clinicians versus taking power from clinicians. Um, how much how much is the coaching of the families on, you know, get to know what your organization is doing before you commit to those services. Is that is that part of the solving of the red flags? Um, because it's gonna happen, it's a, regardless of where your resources come from. If your idea is profit first, that's gonna cause problems. If it's clinical quality and, and best treatment and individualization and community support, well, that's a different kind of venue that we'd be looking at. That's a green flag, right? Uh, so how do you coach the family on that? Maybe Carrie, do you, it, it sounds like you have some outward opportunities to talk with families. Where where does that go? Yeah, and I, I think what you're getting at here, Jeff, is how do, how do what can families do maybe to sort of um, help themselves and sort of differentiate the good from the not so good? Um, is that is that accurate? Is that kind of- Yeah, because I yeah. think it's hard. It's a maze. So hard. Um, I think discussions like this are critical. Families need need to hear. They need to kind of be able to pull back the curtain and sort of see what's back there um, and and understand that some of the motives for the things that are done may not be um, they it, it, they may not be purely related to quality and best outcomes. There there could be there are other influencers. And I think what a family needs to really think about are sort of those motivations. Um. If they're if the agency has boundaries and curbs in place to sort of check those two competing interests, you know, financial uh, financial gain and profit with clinical quality, um, if there are checks and balances there, then it can be wonderful. Um, and and there are 
There are great examples of agencies that do that very well. There are also, unfortunately, agencies that don't do that at all. Um, and it just feels predatory to families, right? So I think any time as a family you're, you're faced with sort of a, an ultimatum, that's a huge red flag for you. Like you should be very curious about that. And um, uh, you, you families should feel very empowered through this process. They should not feel like they are um, sort of left with few alternatives. They, they should have a lot of say. They should have a, a lot of input on everything from the amount of support that's provided, the type of support that's provided. If they don't feel comfortable with a certain procedure uh, or way something is, is unfolding, they, you need to speak up. And you have options. I think those are the things that I would tell families. You you are not stuck with with what is presented to you. You you have a lot of freedom, uh, and you should exercise that freedom, because we only have a few years here to to really get the most out of um, you know, especially in the early intervention side. Uh, and you know, it's precious. That time is precious. So if something isn't feeling right to you, if you're feeling kind of boxed in or cornered. That should be, uh, you know, the warning light should go on for you as, as a family. Um, and at the very least, this provider should be able to explain to you uh, in really clear, transparent ways uh, what, why these things are in place. Um, and, and you should be able to have really frank, candid conversations, and they should be able to give you an unbiased, uh, complete uh, set of facts for you to sort of sort through, um, it, you know, as untechnical as possible, should be very, you know, um, easy to understand. And anytime I think you're just feeling forced, that that's when you really need to take a step back. Yeah, yeah I, was say, I mean, I think this just aligns so clearly with everything that that we're preaching as a field about how we work with kids, right? We don't do forced compliance. It's about happy, relaxed, and engaged. It's about assuming that you've experienced some trauma and we're going to proceed gently at a pace that you're comfortable with. We need to be doing the exact same thing with parents and families because they're going through an extremely hard time too. Um, I mean, I love what Carrie just said about you should always be able to ask questions and feel like they, you, you can get a satisfactory explanation. The answer can't be, well, it's unethical to do less than 40 hours or well, your insurance won't pay for it if we do less than 40 hours, which is obviously not true. Like, do, do you know anything about insurance? <laughs> or, well, the research says we have to do it. I mean, these are just generic canned answers that I worry that that clinicians and, and you know, administrative staff are being trained like, like kind of like a sales, uh, you know, training manual that says, well, if the customer says this, you say this. It's like telemarketing, right? I did telemarketing in college, so I remember that very well. <laughs> it's like you, you're sort of told like this is the answer. And I think that's what worries me about the normalization. Um, we we know that some providers are now saying if if your child misses, you know, they, they have to come in for 40 hours a week. That's every day, full day. They miss a day, they got to come in on Saturdays or else you, you get kicked out of the program. That is not respecting a family's life and perhaps their need to spend one of the two days of the week with their child and doing something for, with the family or even applying all the things the child is learning in therapy. Like mm -hmm. when it was home-based, the whole point was generalization in the natural environment. We've removed that equation. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like we have clinics and we're very proud of them. We think there's a lot of benefits, but, but it has to be done in a way that still 
considers like the whole point of this is for them to not have to come to a clinic, right? That is the ultimate goal here. Mm -hmm. um, we don't pull them out of school when the goal is for them to be able to go to school, you know, unless they want to come out of school because they're struggling. But if they're like, no, school's actually going well, they've got good social opportunities there. We don't want to say, pull your eight-year-old out and come to our clinic so he can spend every day, all day with toddlers, mm -hmm. which we've seen. I mean, that is that is completely disrespectful to a family's long-term needs. Um, and then this idea that like, we've seen some examples where parents aren't allowed to observe. I mean, could you imagine a, a more obvious recipe for disaster and, and abuse and neglect? Your child comes into this building all day, every day, and you don't get to see what happens. And we don't have any cameras because that would be a HIPAA violation. Like that is the most bogus answer, but some of the biggest, most heavily backed companies are using it. So you're absolutely right. Like there's nothing wrong with having a profit motivation. Um, that's how much of healthcare operates. So we're a nonprofit. That doesn't mean that everybody should be. I don't believe that at all. And I, I know that the kind of growth and expansion that like ABS Kids has had, for example, like we're not capable of that, right? So we can never possibly reach as many kids as you are. And, and hats off to you for doing that. Um, but like Carrie said, it has to be balanced. There has to be pure intentions and there has to be checks and balances. And when you start seeing company policies and, and norms and standards being implemented that are clearly roadblocks to that, giving the BCBA clinical integrity, giving families choice, like I don't think there's a lot of question about what the motives are, you know? Um, and that's where I feel like Sometimes we just have to stop sugarcoating it and just get real and be like, not okay, calling it out. This is not okay. So yeah, yeah. I mean, as as you as you all were discussing that, I mean, it's there's three big words that kind of popped in my head throughout the whole process that I think goes across the uh, and we'll put it in the child framework because I mean, ultimately we all should be servicing adults too, but not. Yeah. And it's an underserved population right now, but, yeah, um, but I'm going to use the child framework right now is that empowerment. The child should be empowered. The family should be empowered. The employee and clinician should be empowered. Okay. So transparency, the child should understand what's happening in their treatment uh, to the best of our ability. So the assent should be there at all times as that they should understand what the value is. And if they can have a voice in your treatment, they should be empowering you to do it correctly. That's it, the reinforcers. That's that's uh, treatment goals. That is who's engaged with them. The parent is that they should understand not only what the data is saying, they should also understand what exactly the treatment is, why that treatment's occurring, and the transparency to what it is that they're getting out of the service that they're giving their time, energy, and finances towards. The clinician as well. And so the, the clinician needs to have that transparency of understanding what the company's looking at. What is your quality assurance plan? How are you evaluating your, your client's success through this process? What is the aggregated data on all these key performance indicators that are showing us that we are providing the service that we should be providing. And if we're not, what are those action plans? How are we handling it? What does my voice get? And the same thing with communication. Um, the child should have a communicative process. The family should be communicatively engaged and also decision makers. And the clinician should have a path to communicate with everybody throughout the organization where they don't fear 
that their conversations could lead to any sort of detriment in their career path. Um, and I think that like as I as I hear you all talk about each one of the red flags, and as I've read your articles and and saw the dialogue online, I think that a good organization, if they're able to kind of take those core principles, I think they'd be mitigating a lot of those concerns. Is that is that a fair assessment? I would think so. I mean, honestly, when you know the the big investment wave started uh, five plus years ago with you know private equity and other investors and so on, um, I was nervous, but I wasn't immediately rushing to judgment because we all knew there was great opportunity for expansion and quality improvement and efficiencies and just more consistencies and, and so on within our field. And that's a great opportunity. Um, what I didn't see coming was some of these sort of abusive practices um, that, you know, I realized like, wow, yeah, well, that does make a lot more money. So I guess from that standpoint, it makes sense, but I don't think it was necessary, you know? So you're absolutely right. There's no reason why it has to be this way. There should be plenty of opportunity to do it and, and to do it well. I think part of that is you got to have a little bit more of a long-term view. That's always what made me nervous about private equity is that by definition, they're gone in five to seven years. Um, we just saw yesterday that CARD is declaring bankruptcy. They were kind of the first one that, uh, you know, um, made made the big breakthrough and, and got the, the biggest private equity firm in America involved. So it just, it's still a bit of a wait and see thing for me, but but you're right, this, this could be happening at any level, whether it's, a, you know, a, a tiny practice or whatever. Um, I think it's just important that, you know, the BACB has been so strong in advocating for ethics for behavior analysts. It seems to me that they're steering clear of any ethical guidelines for companies. Um, and over the years, BCBAs have been put in many awkward positions because of that when the owner's not a BCBA or something and their answer is kind of like, well, you know, he's not a BCBA, he doesn't have to follow our ethical code. So they are obviously not the body to do this. They have a role and it's for the practitioner. Um, there are some trade organizations, CASP, for example, where I think the opportunity is great, but I think it's a challenge because they are a membership organization, and guess who a lot of those members are, you know, so it's it is tricky, but I think that there needs to be some generally accepted standards for business business ethics for ABA and autism service providers. And while I think there are some guidelines out there, they're clearly not strong enough to, to um, you know, sway people consistently and sway some of the biggest, the biggest companies in the field consistently. But, but I don't see why it can't be because, like you said, absolutely, you can do it well, you can do it right, and I'm sure you can do just fine financially. Yeah, and I mean, and those discussions are ongoing. Uh, so, and I think that there's a voice coming from all types of organizations on how to be able to make this so that there's a consistency regardless of where your money comes from. Because even as a nonprofit, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your nonprofit board to be able to say, hey, we're managing this appropriately. We're utilizing the funds that you all have gotten through grants and donations correctly, and, and we're doing it right. And that should be the same business thought process from no matter who is the funding source and it's there I, I think i agree with you and the fact that you know those business ethics there needs to be a little bit more of a a spotlight on it and i know that uh, there's accreditation boards that are doing that and standards are being released but it takes the provider network 
to say, hey, I'm going to engage those. I'm going to open up my books and let everybody look at what's happening and be able to justify my decision making, my policies, my practice, and make sure that it's implemented the way that it's written. Um, so I think that, that that that's out there. I think we have ways to go still. But uh, kind of like maybe where you were when things started, I'm still there with hope that you know there there are going to be warts throughout the process that we have to be able to kind of say, okay, we they're there and look past them, get to the next thing and make sure that we're constantly improving the system before the system fails, like you described when we initially started talking. Um, but well, I'd love to give you guys just the last little bit to kind of talk to the clinician network and give them some guidance on what questions maybe they could be asking of their employer to get a better understanding of, is this the right fit for me? Um, and maybe uh, I'd love to hear you both weigh in on a couple of the things that you find important. And maybe we start with Carrie and end with yeah. Aaron and go from there. Yeah, um, there, there are many. And I think, you know, I, I interact with many BCBAs, both within the organization and with them. And, and they're savvy. And I think um, in until we have, um, you know, some some business ethics and some standards of, of, of practice, uh, we have BCBAs who can can put a lot of pressure on organizations to do those right things, and and I think they do. Um, and I think many BCBAs are are now waking up to the fact that they have choices, it, in large part thanks to you know articles like like Aaron's and and others that are saying, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, but you know, I think just to some of the things that we've already um, spoken about, you know, caseload sizes. Um, that's a huge one. If, if you're if you're being asked to um, provide care to uh, a number of clients that just feels unmanageable with sort of no uh, consideration of your schedule or, or the resources that the family may have, and, and time is a resource, can't ignore that. So if the family doesn't have the time or the resources to be able to meet those requirements, uh, then you as a BCBA are completely set up to fail. Um, and no one wants that. We didn't, we didn't, start this work to you know be unsuccessful so um are are you put in a position as a bcba to to be able to do your best work right and caseload size has a lot to do with that it's not the only thing but it has a lot to do with that um as a provider as a bcba do you have some flexibility in terms of um you know the assessments that you use the approach that you use to determine those goals you know there, there needs to be some supports and some framework for you. It can't just be, you know, whatever you feel like, but you should also have a little bit of, of freedom to use your clinical judgment. Uh, if you're a new BCBA, what kinds of supports will you have? Uh, I hear too, way too many stories of BCBAs that are, you know, right out of their uh, their boards and they're asked to be supervising new BCBAs like within six months of that. Um, and that simply is a recipe for disaster, right? Because the, the the certification board will tell you that having a BCBA is the beginning, not the end, right? It's now you have to go out and you have to learn, you have to practice, you have to gain experience. Um, so to be turning around and mentoring the, the, the next group, that, that, that to me, Feels like a, a red flag. Um, those are just a few that I would that I would emphasize, and I'm sure there are there are many more. Erin, uh, I, I know you have a few. Yeah, I mean uh, everything Carrie said, absolutely. You know, just like you said, the the 
the room to to practice with integrity, you know, and, and the encouragement to do so is, is number one. Um, you know, if 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 there's only one way to do an assessment and it's pretty cookie cutter and the results always come out the same, <laughs> that doesn't feel like you're really doing anything. You're more just like a cog in the wheel. And I don't think anybody got into the field to do that. Um, I would say, you know, the what what support is available for not just BCBAs, but trainees for behavior technicians. This is a huge focus for us. Carrie and her team do an unbelievable job of um, always trying to do more in this in this regard and get feedback and how can we support you more. Um, and, you know, autism is complicated and it's it's a wide spectrum and families are complicated. And this is the whole like there's no one size fits all approach. The cookie cutter programs don't work, right? Can't have the same treatment plan for everybody or the same number of hours for everybody. It just doesn't make any sense. What you need is experienced clinicians with a wide range of behaviors and ages and just other sort of characteristics um, so that you're not expected to be able to solve every problem on your own, right? You gotta be part of a network where you've got someone to go to if you're stuck and they have someone to go to if they're not sure what to do either. And and there's room for some trial and error and the family is engaged in the process um, and that kind of thing. I think um, leadership is is super important, of course, um, and not just at the top of the company. I mean, there's some very big companies and some of them will, you know, bring in some very big names as consultants or whatever that can create the impression that like, wow, like unparalleled clinical quality here. But it's kind of like what is happening at the local level? Like what's the leadership at the clinic where you work or the team that you're on? And, you know, are there pathways of communication available? What are the qualifications of clinic directors? One of the most concerning trends I saw a couple years ago was the rapid expansion of clinics here in Arizona. There just weren't any before or barely any. Now there are dozens and dozens. And pretty much if you have a BCBA after your name, you get the job as clinic director. And we just saw too many people that were brand new, newly certified, very narrow experience getting those jobs. And I don't blame them for taking the jobs. It's exciting. It's prestigious. It's probably good money, but I really worry about people being put in positions that they are not prepared for, because when it goes south, that company doesn't care about you, you know, and, and if nobody wants to hire you now because you kind of blew it at the last job because you were in way over your head, too bad, you know, and I just don't think it's fair to put people in positions that they're not ready for and they're they're too early in their career to really understand what what is the range of dynamics that could get thrown at me. Um, and then just a, a basic one that I think every uh, employee should ask in a job interview, and this is not unique to our field, but obviously our field is the one we're focused on, is do you have a non-compete agreement? Because we've seen, you know, too many people feel like they're stuck in a situation. And even if maybe it's legally unenforceable, um, there are these things that they just kind of sign during employment, you know, like just like we all click terms and conditions every time we get an update on our phone. We don't know what we're signing until <laughs> it comes back. And, you know, we've seen people feel like they're stuck in a toxic workplace, but they can't leave because they're being threatened with legal action if they do, and they won't be able to work anywhere else and they'll get sued and they're not allowed to say anything bad about the company. And it's just like, you know, these are the types of sort of like top level, you know, aversive control that I feel like are signs that like, 
this company is not operating in a healthy way, yeah. you know, and, and this is a red flag. Now, it could be that the company is has gotten big and has gotten some, you know, sort of corporate advice or whatever that that this is okay and maybe they don't fully realize the, the negative impacts. But this is where BCBAs need to be able to speak openly to their management and hopefully influence a change. Um, and we've seen some companies actually do that that say, you know what, we're no longer doing non-competes. Like we thought it was normal. We've realized it's actually not good. So we're not going to do that anymore. Great. Like that's the kind of change that I think could be affected if people are willing to speak up and can do so respectfully, hopefully, um, and just, you know, change things from within. Yeah. Well, I, I hope to continue this conversation. I appreciate you both coming on to talk about this today. And this is my perspective, but I think there's so much alignment in good practice, regardless of where your organization is, how big you are, who your funding source is, what your board looks like. I think that ultimately is that good practice is is good practice and everybody has to be focused on that. One of the things that I'd say is the reason I'd like to continue the dialogue is because I think that there's a way to be able to help guide the field where you have a variety of providers from all types, all sizes, whatever, communicating on these concerns to be able to figure out what it is that we can learn from one another to be able to continue and evolve and make our science, make our treatment, make our family experience that much better so that when we go back to that original story of Aaron and his brother is that Aaron can can say is that, you know, I made the field so that my brother and everybody who received services like my brother did benefited from this conversation, this dialogue and this ongoing self analysis of where my organization is and where we're going forward. So um, I appreciate it. And like I said, hopefully we can stay connected and continue to have these conversations because I think that there's a lot that we can be able to explore. Well, I'm so happy you had us on. It you. was yeah. really an honor. And I hope that um, someone listening out there learned something meaningful and helpful and, uh, you know, walks away better for it. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And, and thank you for your leadership, Jeff, and doing this podcast and being open to a conversation like this. Um, and, and you know, this is this is not our our battle. This is not our fight. We're just we're just doing exactly what you said. We we care about about the people we serve. We care about the, the people who work in this field and we care about the future. And um, and I think most of us in this field do. And so we just want to do our part to help um, keep that dialogue going. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Let's keep it going. Well, thank you again. And and we all benefit from your passion. So thank you so much. And I uh, hope to have you back sometime. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. 